I'm going to talk today about the table. Can include from the slide there. And it's the first of a three-week series about the table. And uh, it kind of interrupts the series that we're doing on authentic humanity. But I'm really grateful to Phil and Sarah for the opportunity to, to share this series of uh, talks with you. I believe they complement that series really well because I think one of the places where you find authentic humanity and you nurture it is around the table. And I'm going to explain what I mean by the table um, shortly. M my goal today, so I'm going to give you the appeal now, and then if you fancy, you can just cut loose, I suppose, if you didn't want to stay for the middle bit. But the, 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 where I'm going to land is I'm going to, um, my goal is not to tell you what to do, okay? I'm not going to give you any instructions today. What I'm going to hopefully encourage you to do is have a conversation. Have a conversation about your table and what you could choose to do with it in order to help to kind of create identity, to make friends, to build family, to strengthen community, and to extend culture, all by using a resource that most, if not all of you have got, called a table. You're allowed to get really excited about that, but feel free to contain it, it's okay. Why, why on earth am I talking today about a table? Well, many reasons, let me just give you some of them. One of them is because relationships in this community can start in this room, but they continue and they grow outside of this room. And one of the ways in which they continue and they grow is around a table. It said, in fact, I saw a Facebook post this week, so it must be true, <clears throat> that millennials are leaving the church in their droves. If only I was a millennial. Actually, I would say not just millennials are leaving their church in droves. I'm Gen X, by the way. I squeeze in. I'm almost a baby boomer, but not quite. So I'm kind of happy about that because that would make me much older, well, feel much older than I am today. But most of the people I ran with as a Christian 30 years ago are not in church anymore. Because it's not just millennials who left the building. My generation left the building, and one of the reasons, if not the reason they left, is because they were totally disillusioned by the quality of, and the lack of authenticity of the relationships that they endured or enjoyed within their church community. And one of the reasons why I believe that has happened, and it's for you to decide whether this is true or not, is that the church has replaced the table with the platform. Now I'm standing on a platform, which is somewhat ironic, and I am not going to suggest to you today that we should burn the platforms and replace it with a table. Because most of you who know me well will know I'm a both-and kind of guy. It's never either-or. It's always both-and. But I think there's a huge 
huge, disproportionate amount of time and focus and effort and investment in the church today between the platform and the table. Which is why I don't think what I'm sharing today is just simply for vine life. I really believe prophetically this word, this emphasis, is actually an invitation to the charismatic and the Pentecostal traditions to understand, to have a conversation themselves about how they make room for the table alongside the platform. You see, metaphorically speaking, if not literally, we have made and built very big platforms. And our tables are tiny, if not non-existent. One of the symptoms of that is a lack of depth in our relationships, which is why millennials and the rest of us, in many cases, are leaving the building. What I want to do over the next three weeks is this. So today, I'm going to just lay a foundation and talk a bit about the table, and I'm going to focus in on the home. I'm going to talk about the home. Next week, I'm going to talk about the table and community. So I'm going to talk about the Lord's table. Depending on your tradition, your stream, you might call that the Eucharist, breaking of bread, communion. I'm not going to talk about that now. I get very excited about next week. I need to stay in the moment, don't I? Help me get back in the moment. Next week is going to be amazing. Um, and then the third week, if I can fit these three stories in, I'm going to have us sit around the table with Mephibosheth. I'm going to have us sit around the table with the Queen of Sheba. And then I'm going to have a sit around the table with Zacchaeus. That's a lot of tables, so wish, wish me luck with that one in two weeks' time. But I just want to have a sit at those tables and have a conversation about what we can learn from being guests at those tables. When I talk about the table, I'm primarily today talking about it as a physical object. So for a moment, just visualize, picture your table. Most of you, I assume, will have one. Not everybody will. But if you have a table, just picture it. Because I'm kind of talking about that table that you can see now in your mind's eye. Talking about that table. But I'm also talking metaphorically. Because I think the table also has value in, in metaphorical terms. In It's simply a place and a space that you and I can create that we can invite people into. So it works in both ways. So feel free to think about it in that way. Why does the table matter so much? Well, there's a lot of research, which I'm not going to bore you with today, that says, and I, I kind of believe there's truth in it. Not everything you read on the internet is true. That's, we all know that. But there's a lot of research done that says the demise of the table in our personal lives, our family lives, our corporate lives, has damaged and is damaging our mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual health. And I think that's true. So I'm just going to say that without proving it to you, because statistics can be made, and Google quotes can prove anything. You decide whether that's true. I think it's true. And so the table matters, because in some ways it is a matter of life and death. If you go back far enough, many houses, if they were big enough, had a kitchen table, and they had a separate dining table. It was the room that very few people ever went in. You know, I, I've still got family who've got dining rooms and dining tables. And you go in and it's like, I don't think anybody ever uses this room. It's like amazing. It's like 
pristine. Because the dining room, we decided, was a bit of an effort, really. It was a long walk from the kitchen to the dining room with, with the trays and... Like a lot of, we haven't got time for that stuff. So we retired the dining room, and eventually we kind of chopped up the dining table and used it for firewood, and that just left us with a kitchen table. But then, over time, some of us decided we didn't really need the kitchen table either, because just life is too, we're too fast, too busy. We don't really need the kitchen table. We, what we've got now is the coffee table, because that allows you to sit down and watch telly, and eat and watch telly at the same time. But I actually heard, I read a statistic, and it might be true, it might not, but it kind of scared me, so I'm going to share it with you. That actually in the States today, 20% of meals are eaten in the car. And we all know that what starts in America eventually finds its way here, good, bad, and ugly, right? So if that is true, be afraid. And it's all, of course, linked to fast food outlets where you can just drive, pick up your food, and eat it. Even when you're driving, if you're hungry, how dangerous is that? But it's symptomatic of this kind of um, the demise of the table. Now, the table for Sarah and I and our family was really significant. If I go back uh, a long time, we've been married 32 years. Is that right? 31. She's trying to help me by saying it's one, it's one. But no, it's okay. Well, it's rounded up to two, 32 years. So we're kind of older, right? You go back to when our kids were little. Most of the time, through our family journey, we sat around a table at tea time and we ate together. I'm under no illusions that today, doing that is incredibly difficult. Much more challenging than it was when Sarah and I were younger and our kids were growing up. So there's a danger when I say, think about the table, that you may think I'm speaking to you from a different generation. And I am. But it's equally possible I could be speaking to you from a different kingdom, a different culture, that says even today, the table in the home is something we should care about and fight for, even though the pressure on you and I to do that is greater now than it was then. I'm not suggesting you have to have every mealtime as a family all the time. I'm not, because remember, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just inviting you to have a conversation. What are you going to do with this talk and, and now with the table? But when our kids were growing up, I remember it well. The table for us was an amazing place. Three daughters... There was literally nothing we didn't talk about. So quite a lot of the time I was going, oh no, we're going to talk about that. Surely we are not going to talk about, oh, we just did talk about that. Okay, fair enough, let's just carry on. There was nothing we didn't talk about at that table. I kept a Collins Dictionary within reach because almost every mealtime, somebody would use a word and I'd want to know what the derivation of that word was in the Latin. So... I would, the girls, I'd press pause with the kids and I would get the Collins Dictionary and I would tell them where the word came from. So it was a place we learned a lot from each other. I suspect most of the careers advice that our children got was from around the family table. Because around that table in the conversation, we decided what we were good at. We decided who we were. Who did we want to be? So Beth was always going to be either a PE teacher or a firewoman or a policewoman or something. It was like, it was like you know, there weren't many career options open to Beth because once we'd finished tea, we kind of realized who she was and what she was on the planet for. We saw her and heard her in a way that was only possible because we were sitting around a table having a conversation. 
So we didn't really need careers advisors in the end because we had enough meal times to know what the answer was. Sarah, when our kids were little, gave up work as a medical secretary and did something much more challenging. She became a childminder. And Sarah minded, I mean, I don't know, it's into double digits, isn't it? It's probably 20-something children over a period of time alongside our children. And one of the things that we saw firsthand was the power of family tables. Because some of these minded children would come into our home and they would have tea with us. And the parents would say things like this, he doesn't eat. We'd sit him down at our table and he would join in and he'd eat. And the parents would go like, wow. It's the power of the table. A place of family where family gets to eat together and we introduce them to this culture and they, they catch it because culture is caught around a table. The Bible in Genesis 2 opens with this amazing invitation. You are free to eat from the tree of life. So there's an invitation to eat in Genesis 2. If you go all the way through the pages of your Bible to Revelation 22... You get an invitation to drink. Drink from the water of life. So I just want to suggest to you that the Bible you're holding is a big invitation to eat and drink. Because between Genesis and Revelation, the people of God, the narrative of God, is filled with food and drink. Now, some of you are going, yes, but Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he said, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So this food and drink is, is really all about Jesus. Because Jesus is always the answer. I just want to suggest something to you. It's both and. Because it always is both and. Yes, it's metaphorical language. But also, you have, to, you have to acknowledge that between Genesis and Revelation, the people of God, their story was filled with food and drink. Filled with food and drink. Now, in the Old Testament, this eating and drinking was scheduled into the calendar through a series of feasts and festivals. It's hardwired into the Jewish calendar, as it still is today. You go to Presswich, very big Jewish area, you will find them observing the same feasts and festivals as they would have been doing centuries ago. But Jesus did something very interesting when he transitioned us into the New Testament. He fulfilled the old, so he'd show up at the festival. But Jesus in his personal life spent a huge amount of time, unscheduled, sitting around a table. So far I've got to about 47 references in the gospel where Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming away from a meal. Most of what you'll have heard talked about in Jesus' life was the fact that in between all of this eating and drinking, he did a lot of miracles, and I'm accepting that's true. He did also do the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and speak to crowds. Although he couldn't resist the temptation to feed the 5,000, could he? Because he decided, you know what, this lot hungry, let's eat and drink. But it's true to say, if you look at the Gospels with a certain lens, you will see that Jesus spent a lot of his time eating and drinking, and it was nothing to do with the calendar it was him modeling that the table is a powerful way to make friends, to build family, and to strengthen community. 
It's funny that the guy who said, I'm going to build my church, didn't build a platform. He spent a lot of his time sitting around a table. So much so that in Matthew 11, if you've got your Bibles with you, please do turn to it. It's good exercise, if nothing else. Matthew 11, verse 18, because the words I don't think are going to come up on the screen. So it'd be good to get them up and read them for yourself. But in Matthew 11 and verse 18, Jesus talking about the feedback that he was getting from the religious community of his day. He says this, he says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, which is a name for Jesus, Jesus, I, came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. There was something about Jesus' lifestyle that meant the people who were observing him would accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard. It doesn't take a huge amount of logic to realize that that's because he's eating and drinking a lot. Why else would they call him a glutton and a drunkard, right? Now, I am not suggesting he got drunk, but I am suggesting he was eating and drinking in a way that caused people to accuse him of that. But Jesus says something so fascinating in these verses, and I've been digging into this for a few weeks and months because I was curious. Why does Jesus in that verse say, wisdom is proved right by her deeds? Am I the only one who thinks, that's an unusual way to end that, you know, to end that statement? Why, why would he choose to say that? I'm not suggesting this is the answer, but I've got an answer, which I really love. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, if you've still got them, to Proverbs chapter 9 and verses 1 to 6, I just want to read to you some verses that I believe when Jesus is talking there, these may well be some of the verses that he is actually thinking about. Proverbs 9, verses 1 to 6. Just listen to these verses Listen to what wisdom does. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maids and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come in here. She says to those who lack judgment... Come eat my food and drink the wine I have made. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. When Jesus said in those verses back in Matthew, wisdom is known by what that is right, is proved right by her deeds, I think he was thinking about Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 9. Because in Proverbs chapter 9, what we see there is that wisdom builds home. Wisdom has built her house. And then it says, wisdom has set her table. And wisdom has cooked food and fermented wine. And then wisdom goes looking for people who need to find home. And she introduces them into the environment that she's created. Now, wisdom is very closely associated to the apostolic to what it means to be an apostolic community. So I'd venture to suggest, you know, as we continue to become 
who we are, which is an apostolic community, as Phil and Sarah lead us in the direction of that, one of the things that will look like is us building home. And I don't just mean having a building. I mean having homes and tables where we invite people to come and to join us. To share your table with someone is to share your life. To invite somebody to your table is to offer them friendship and community. To invite somebody to your table is to invite them into the culture, aka the kingdom, that you live in. It's It's why when people sit at your table, they feel different. Have you ever had somebody sit at your table? He says, I just, I love it here. It's so great to be with you. What they're responding to is the fact that you have invited them into your culture. There's a presence about the table that you cannot find anywhere else. There's a biblical principle called the law of first mention. It's when something is first mentioned in the Bible, it carries real significance. So when Abraham sacrificed Isaac or went to do that, that's the first time worship is used. So when we talk about worship, we'll talk about worship, and the law of first mention is to do with sacrifice. The table is first mentioned in Exodus 25. The Lord prescribes that a table is placed within the tabernacle to stay there permanently in his presence. And on the table, the Lord prescribes that there should be 12 loaves of bread. It's called the bread of presence. And these 12 loaves sat on the table 24-7 in his presence. So what? Two things. Firstly, the table sits in the presence of God. There's a relationship between the table and the presence of God that we haven't even begun, I think, to understand. You know, Bill Johnson says... We've transitioned from gathering around the pulpit to gathering around the presence because that's what they did in the Old Testament. They transitioned around presence, gathered around presence. But our interpretation of presence seems to me to be far more linked to platform than table. Because what we've said is we gather around a platform and that platform is the metaphor for presence, meaning worship. But in Exodus 25, he didn't say build a platform. He said build a table. Now, I'm not saying burn the platform. (laughs) Do not hear what I'm not saying. What I'm saying is where is the table? And the second thing I'd say is that the number 12... Remember these 12 loaves? One loaf for each tribe. The table is not just a place where the presence of God is hosted, where kingdom culture can be experienced in a a way that you can't anywhere else. The table is also an inclusive place, not an exclusive place. 12, one for each tribe. That meant every single person in the community was represented at the table. So there's nothing cliquey about the table. The table is 
inclusive. It's not about the size of the table. We had a table made when we moved into the barn three and a half years ago. And I had a conversation with Sarah recently about do we need an extension for Christmas? Because since then we've had five grandchildren. If they all show up at once with their parents, we definitely don't have a big enough table. Thankfully, the scheduling this year means that we can get away with the table the size it is. So we don't need an extension to our table this year, but I'm pretty sure we're going to need one next year. It's not about the opulence of the table. This is not come dine with me. I am not saying, right, let's have a go at, uh, let's have a competition to who can make the best Christian quiche or lasagna. It's not, a, it's not a come dine with me thing. And also, it's not a necessarily about the permanence of your table. There's an amazing reference to the table in Psalm 23, which some of you might have thought, I wonder when he's going to get to the table in Psalm 23. Well, this is that moment, right? So the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He, takes, he leads on paths of righteousness. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. He prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. I used to think that like, what would that would be? Would be Jesus takes me for a walk and then says, right, let's get back to the palace for a party. I'm not sure that's true. It might be. I think most likely now the way I interpret that is he leads me into this beautiful place of where I'm being nourished and fulfilled and my identity is, I know who I am. And then he throws this amazing picnic. So I think this is a pop-up table. I think this is the sort of thing that you and I can do strategically when any time, any place we like. We're going to have a pop-up table and we're going to have a picnic. We're going to just do something here and now. And in that psalm, it's in the presence of your enemies. Now, I used to think, see, this is what age does to you. I used to think that when Jesus did that, it was like he's going to poke the enemy in the eye with a big sharp stick going, no, 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 because we're over here having a party and we're just doing it because we want you to know that we know how this is going to end and it's not going to end well for you, no, 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 no. So like, we're just partying here and celebrating and every time we celebrate with a volivon, it's another kind of like one in the eye for the, for the enemy, right? Come on, let's have another volivon, yeah, see? It's like, I don't even know what a volivon is, but I think it's something you eat. Um, but as I've, as I've aged... I'm glad you're laughing. It's just so good. Yeah, Not all my jokes are funny. I do know that. Sarah tells me that all the time. Um, when, um, where was I? Oh, yeah. I've got a bit older now. And I actually think, do you know what? When, when Jesus pops this table up and creates a feast, I have a sneaky feeling that some of the time at least, there's an invitation extended to the enemies to join the table. Because the table is the place where you you can learn to be reconciled beautifully and powerfully through conversation. And I just think, I wonder sometimes which it is. Sarah and I have done pop-up tables. We've said, right, you, let's go and find a big posh restaurant and let's have a really big meal because you're in the middle of a battle and it's not over yet, but we just want to celebrate victory with you. So we can do that. Sometimes maybe we're struggling with somebody and we think we've got to fix this. Maybe the strategy to fix it is have a meal together and listen really well to some very open questions that you might ask. So it can be a pop-up table. 
just pause for a minute. I'm coming into land now, but just think for a minute about your table. Just allow the pictures, the images of all the people that have ever sat around your table and just think about them all. Just allow yourself to drift. Stop listening to me for a minute and just think about all those beautiful people that you've had sit around your table. Some of them celebrating great victories. Some of them devastated by amazing loss. Some of them very wealthy. Some of them with nothing. Think about the stories that they had to tell you and the stories that you were able to tell them. Think about the history lessons that you had around your table. Think about the futures that you imagined. I think about my family table and we, we, our kids were little and I blinked and they were married and had kids and I thought, what did that happen? How did that even happen? But you go back to those moments when they're five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and you're you're talking about their day. And you're dreaming with them about their future. And all of that's happening around a table. You know, in our days, there was no dishwasher in our house until our kids were teenagers. So our mealtimes were associated with having to wash the dishes. Come on, millennials, be grateful for something, right? <laughs> and so our kids grew up singing. We sang as we washed the dishes because it was a way of staying sane. Do you know what I mean? I can think about, I can think of just about all these beautiful images. I'm starting to fill your mind with my story now. Just think about your story. Think about the arguments you've had around the table. Think about the, you know, the things you've had to negotiate and settlements you've had to reach. Think about how people have kind of come to work out who they are around your table. And how lives have been changed by what you've been doing around this table. All I'm really asking you to do is keep doing what you're already doing. But have a, have a refresh your conversation about your table and what you might do with it. I'm going to finish by saying just a few things to close. Relationships can start in this room. But they continue and they grow outside of this room. And a table is a beautiful place to nurture friendship, family, and community. This is a great place to make acquaintances. But the table is a great place to make friends. The auditorium provides us with the ability to go wide. But the table gives us an opportunity to go deep. If the auditorium is the only place that you connect, that I connect, then our relationships and your relationships will be as dissatisfying as your roots are shallow. That's why the millennials leave in droves, so-called millennials. That's why many of us leave in droves. You might be lucky and somebody might just spot you for a moment and you felt seen and heard for a moment. But actually it will be a fleeting glimpse and then you will feel like nobody knows me and nobody sees me anymore. Nobody's championing me and challenging me and I don't feel fruitful and I'm certainly not flourishing here. And eventually you will drift off. Authentic community, authentic humanity can be found and can be nurtured around a table where we are seen and we are heard, where we are known, where we are challenged and championed and where we find ourselves fruitful and flourishing. And so I finish with a question. 
so what? Past the time, listen to me talk. But I wonder if I've achieved my goal of, of encouraging you to have a conversation about how you would use your table to ensure that this community doesn't just grow big, but it grows well. That we don't just grow numerically, but we grow relationally. You all have a table, and if you don't, borrow somebody's. But find a place and a space where you can help people to find out who they are and whose they are. A place where you can help to build family, to strengthen community, and invite people into the culture, the kingdom, that you are so wonderfully enjoying today. Thank you. Thank <clears throat> you.